0: Hey guys, welcome to the 10th episode of Colored Red. We've got a number of new listeners this week, which I am incredibly excited about. I've also launched an Instagram account where I'll be trying to post some pictures and information associated with each episode, as well as some potential extra stuff about some of the true crime adventures I'll be going on in Colorado. If you want to look that up, it's just found under Colored Red Podcast. As for today's topic... I'll have to warn that it involves the death of a child. So if you take any issue with this, I suggest not listening to this episode. This episode will feature information from Westward, the Denver Post, the book titled The Loss of Innocence, Child Killers and Their Victims by Kara E. Richards, as well as the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the Alley Foundation. There's a write-up on the Alley Foundation website about the murder written by Gail C. Shirley that I'll also be referencing. This episode will be covering the kidnapping and murder of Alessandra Ariel Varelas, also known as Allie, as her family actually called her, and I'll be calling her Allie from here on out. On May 18th, 1993, Allie was playing in front of her apartment complex in Inglewood, Colorado. Her babysitter, who was also a neighbor in the building, um, briefly went inside and came out to find Allie missing. Four days later, a bloodhound named Yogi and his handler Jerry Nichols were called in to pick up her scent, and after an entire day of searching, Yogi stopped near Deer Creek Canyon. The next morning, they found Allie's body stuffed into a khaki duffel bag and tossed from a 20-foot embankment. This story hits close to home, and I was first reminded of it by my mom, who is also a true crime addict and who also listens to this podcast, Hey Mom. One night, we were discussing potential cases on the phone, and she reminded me of a time just after Allie had been abducted. I was five years old in 1993, just like Allie, and we were living in Aurora at the time. I was playing outside in our yard, and we had a very close neighbor system, and tons of kids lived on our block, so it was common to find kids out on this block playing with several parents watching, or with parents sitting inside, or on the driveways in lawn chairs while we ran around. This particular evening, I was playing up near the house when my dad, who had been working in the garage, went to go to the grocery store to grab something for dinner. Not far down the road, he turned around after realizing he forgot his wallet. During this time, my mom went inside briefly, and my dad pulled back into the driveway, grabbed his wallet from the workbench, and asked me if I wanted to come with him to the store. I happily said yes and hopped into our old Azuzi Trooper. Then my mom came back outside, and I was nowhere to be found cell phones weren't a thing yet and there was no way to call my dad immediately my mom rounds up the neighbors and within a few minutes everyone is running door to door trying to find out if i had gone to play in another yard my mom told me that all she could think of while descending into panic was me and what happened to ali barellas right as my mom reached for the phone to call the police my dad pulls into the driveway with me in the front seat we both see the panic look on my mom's face and all the neighbors in the yard and my dad immediately realized his mistake. This moment was just a small part of my childhood where the case of Allie Borellas was a turning point for the freedom of our outdoor playing and one of the moments that solidified a lifelong interest in true crime. Allie's murder was on everyone's mind for a long time and it was one of those rare but distinct child abductions where Stranger Danger became realized and it made something as innocent as playing outdoors on a warm day feel just that little bit more dangerous than it was before. According to the book titled The Loss of Innocence, and that's innocence with a T-S on the end, which is a review of 1,098 deaths of children 12 years old and under between the years of 1977 and 1993, the year Ali was murdered, Children are killed by either their parents or by known associates of their parents and family in 91% of all cases. Of course, these weren't all the child deaths during this time, but these were the deaths that had articles in the New York Times with information supplemented from other articles. According to their research, almost 7% of the victims were killed after being sexually assaulted. Something called sustained sexual abuse, which is something that's done over a period of time, is almost always done by a family member, while momentary sexual assault is almost always a stranger. Of the victims in question, 51% were killed by their parents, another 10% were killed by a lover of their parent who was not their own biological parent, 11% were killed by friends, known neighbors, or in laws, a further 8% were killed by other biological kin. were killed by others in close proximity to the child, such as babysitters, nurses, or co-workers of the parents, 3% were killed by foster or adoptive parents, and roughly 3% by a family that were not married and not biological, and the remaining 9% were killed by complete strangers. So these percents probably don't add up to exactly 100, because I was rounding in some instances, but you get the idea that not a lot of children are actually killed by total strangers, as we are sort of led to believe. However, in Allie's case, whether or not to call someone a stranger or a neighbor is irrelevant, because she was killed by a man who ended up being both, and who, from the window of his own apartment, watched Allie and her brother play. This man could be called a neighbor only by the proximity of where he lived, but he was nonetheless a stranger to Allie. In terms of murder in Colorado, the data from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation only goes back to 1998. In 1998, 6.3% of homicide victims were under the age of 10. In 2003, a decade after Allie's murder, it was 7.1%, and two decades after her murder in 2013, it was 8.1%. The most recent available CBI report from 2015 Tells us that the number is back down to 5.8% for homicide victims under the age of 10. The CBI data, however, reports by number of offenses and shows a rise in homicides since 2010 without accounting for population growth. Recent data from a neighborhood watch site also shows that in Denver, violent crime per 1,000 people is slightly higher than the national rate of 0.05 and sits at 0.08. Your chances of being the victim of a violent crime in Denver is 1 in 151 people, and your chances of becoming a victim of violent crime in Lakewood, where Allie was killed, is 1 in 176. The Lakewood violent crime rate per 1,000 individuals is 0.03. But crime in Lakewood and Denver isn't what this episode is about. One thing that this book about child victims emphasizes is that there is no clear-cut way to predict in what circumstances a child may be abducted or murdered. And in the case of Allie Bareilles, she was just playing outside with her brother and her friends only feet from her own front door. She probably played out there a lot, as we all did, but this time she wouldn't be coming back home. On May 18, 1993, Allie was sitting outside her family home in an apartment complex called the Golden Nugget in Lakewood, eating pizza with her brother and some other children. Her babysitter, who was a well-known neighbor, went inside to put the leftover pizza away. When she came out only minutes later, Allie had disappeared. Within minutes, police and neighbors were on the hunt for Allie. Friends and family kept a vigil inside the home. Allie's mother spoke with reporters the next day and said that Allie knew better than to go with a stranger, but that she loved people and it may have been her downfall. Only months earlier, a three-year-old boy named Mikey Chandler went missing from a church, but he was found alive and disheveled, and everyone hoped that this case would have a similar resolution. One of the most pressing problems in this kidnapping was that Allie needed asthma medication several times a day in order to breathe. Local newspapers began printing headlines begging for her safe return, and businesses began raising reward money in exchange for information, but nothing was leading police anywhere. After three days, the police called in a specialist by the name of Yogi, a bloodhound trained to track the scent of a suspect or missing person. According to Jerry Nichols, Yogi's handler, Yogi had an amazing nose that rivaled any other bloodhound. Since Allie had gone missing, it had rained and people had been combing the neighborhood in search of Allie. The police figured that Allie had been picked up by a car and was probably miles away by now. Nevertheless, the search was underway. Yogi picked up a scent from Allie's clothing and he confidently pushed towards Broadway. He went down Broadway several blocks until he turned up a ramp to go onto the interstate. In an unprecedented event, the officers walked Yogi along the shoulder of the 470 highway heading west. At each exit, he would examine the exit and then keep pressing on. To try to save time, the officers began skipping exits. And on their first skip, however, Yogi sat down to indicate that he had lost the scent. So they went back to their prior exit. They had now been searching for seven hours and they had come ten miles. And Yogi was ready to pass out, so they stopped. The next morning, they continued where they left off. They traveled past Chatfield Reservoir and traveled along the road into Deer Creek Canyon, heading into the steep and unyielding Rocky Mountains. Yogi stopped in an area near a 20-foot embankment. At the bottom of this embankment, police found a khaki duffel bag. Inside was the body of Allie Barellis. She was wearing the Oshkosh denim jumper that she had been wearing when she went missing. She had suffocated to death yet because she suffered from severe asthma, it was thought that the asthma had contributed to her death. The medical examiner stated that there was no sign of sexual assault, yet DNA samples from various clothing as well as her underwear were taken. Experts were dumbfounded with how well Yogi tracked Ali, not only over nearly 14 miles, but after three and a half days and a rainstorm. Experts claimed, also, that human dander carries a scent and lands around where that person has been, much like pollen lands from a tree. Some also say that rain will enhance the scent. According to Yogi's handler, Jerry Nichols, Yogi could track a person who was traveling in a moving car, even with the windows rolled up. But Yogi's job was not done. Starting at the site where the body of Ali was found, he traced a scent back to the apartment complex where she was abducted. Only instead of going back to her apartment, he went into the apartment of a neighbor. The man who lived in the apartment that Yogi went to was named Nicholas Raymond Stoffer. He was single and working as a welder at the time. He had only lived in that apartment for three weeks prior to Allie going missing, and even more curious was that he had decided to leave Colorado the day that Allie's body was found. Allie's three-year-old brother had told detectives that the old man had taken Allie and walked to the door of Nicholas Stopher and pointed. Nicholas Stopher had fled to California on the day that Allie's body was found, and detectives learned that Stouffer was likely in the apartment when they knocked on his door in the initial search for Allie, but he didn't answer their knocks. They also learned that he had not shown up for work the day after Allie had vanished, and that a friend had seen a duffel bag like the one that Allie was found in inside his apartment, and that he had borrowed a car two days later for unknown reasons, despite having his own car. Stouffer had a known drug and alcohol problem, and his criminal record consisted of minor drug and alcohol-related charges, but there was nothing in terms of sex offenses on his record. Stouffer was questioned in California, and they extradited him based on outstanding drunk driving ticket, they took hair and DNA samples, but DNA science wasn't at the level that it is today, and the DNA samples that they collected from Allie's underwear could not be accurately compared. However, there was some evidence that could be tied to Stopher, just not without reasonable doubt. There were metal shavings at the bottom of the duffel bag that Allie was found in, and Stopher was known to be a welder. Additionally, there were fibers found on Allie's body that could continuously be matched to the carpet in Stopher's apartment which was actually a different carpet than any of the other carpet in the apartment complex. Friends of Stouffer mentioned that he had partied in Deer Creek Canyon as a teenager, and that he at one point expressed a desire to abduct a little girl, which makes you wonder what kind of friends would even still be his friend after a statement like that. The detectives took their case to Bob Gallagher, the district attorney in Arapahoe County at the time, and he made the decision that there wasn't enough physical evidence to file charges against Stopher. Police Chief John Collins said that they wanted to put the cuffs on Stouffer really badly, but the evidence just wasn't there, and they really didn't think that they were going to ever get a conviction. Over the years, detectives tried resubmitting the case from different angles, and they claimed that the pain of being unable to bring in Stouffer was enough to fuel the fire and keep looking at the case. So in January of 2011, Detective Bobby Garrett looked at the case again and she saw how clear it was that Stouffer was their man. She sent Allie's clothing and duffel bag to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation so that they could test the items again with more sensitive tests used to isolate and enlarge smaller samples of DNA so that they could be linked to a collected DNA profile which they had taken from Stopher from the beginning. Garrett was stunned to find out that a DNA profile collected from Allie's underwear matched Stopher. Additionally, a partial DNA profile collected from her waistband of her underwear as well matched Stopher. Unfortunately though, in 2011, Stopher was long dead. He died in Arizona on October 7th, 2001 from an apparent drug overdose. Up until Stoffer's death, he and his family insisted upon his innocence until the DNA evidence came back. During an interview with Seven News in nineteen ninety four, Stoffer said, I've seen kids out there. I've never paid attention to them. Stoffer claimed that just before Allie disappeared, he was talking to a neighbor and then went inside. He said, I went into my apartment, laid down and watched T V and dozed off. During this time, Allie's grandfather was asked if he thought that Stouffer was the killer, and Richard Barella said, I don't know. I'm trying to keep an open mind. Richard Barella said he always had faith that law enforcement would solve this case, but he said that faith was tested at times. There was a point when I was upset, he said. I was upset with law enforcement and with the neighborhood. Nicholas Stoffer would go on to say that he had been unfairly targeted the, by the police because he was a welder and because of his lifestyle. He routinely said that they were too busy focusing on him when the real killer was out on the streets. He said, how can a child be abducted and taken away without anybody seeing anything? I used to think that law enforcement could solve any case with the information they had. I later learned that in some cases it takes a lot of time. As for what actually happened to Allie after she was abducted, we'll never know. I think it's likely that she died from an asthma attack or complication while being held captive by Nicholas Stopher. There isn't much information on the state of decomposition when her body was found or how long she's suspected to have been alive after her abduction. This case has been featured on Unsolved Mysteries as well as Vanished with Beth Holloway. One reporter who aided in the search and followed Yogi as he went down C-470 was able to interview the grandparents as well as Allie's mother, Maravelle. Her mother soon moved out of the apartment that they were staying at, and she said that it was too much for her to stay there, and that everywhere she looked, she was reminded of Allie. Richard Pirelles, Allie's grandfather, started the Allie Foundation, which stands for Abducted, Lost, Innocent Enough and they accept donations in order to provide bloodhounds to police departments so that dogs may find missing children or children who have been abducted. Richard Brellis said of his granddaughter in an interview that she was a little girl, five years old, defenseless, innocent. She probably called for help from everybody she knew when this was happening, but nobody could hear her. She was a small little girl. I used to think of her as a victim, as an innocent victim, when I got the call from Inglewood Police Department last week, it hit me. Allie's not a victim. I don't want to think of her as a victim. I don't want people to think of her as a victim. She's a hero and she has been a hero for the past 18 years since she left this world. There are a lot of questions that we have as a family and that we'll never have the answer to, Richard Brella said. All we can do is guess as to why and how and what time everything happened during the different days. In terms of Yogi, the bloodhound, over seven years, Yogi worked 476 cases involving 70 different agencies in eight states. He helped put 27 murderers behind bars. He had hunted down robbers, and he had also helped in search for Alzheimer's patients who wandered away from home, as well as escaped jail inmates, drunk drivers who left the seat of an accident, and people trapped in a collapsed building. In addition to all of this, he helped a local historical society locate graves that were more than 110 years old. Yogi died in June of 1998 from cancer, and just a few days before his death, he assisted in a manhunt in which a Denver officer was killed and another was ambushed. Yogi's handler, Jeff Nichols, and his wife, Milika, have organized the Law Enforcement Bloodhound Association, which promotes the use of bloodhounds in police work. They've also published a training manual on the topic called Common Sense the Bloodhound and Law Enforcement. Historically, bloodhounds are known as man hunters or man trailers, and they are descendants of a 7th century French Saint Hubert hound. They were used in the famous case of Jack the Ripper, albeit with little protocol, and I think that the boys on last podcast talked about this a little bit. Um, Up until the point of using the hounds to try to find Jack the Ripper, dogs had been borrowed from private owners when they were needed for police work. Sir Charles Warren, the police commissioner at the time of the Jack the Ripper case, intended to buy dogs to be always kept in the police department. And Mr. Edwin Brow, a bloodhound breeder from Scarborough, brought forward his finest hounds, Berghow and Barnaby, to test the position with the Metropolitan Police in London. Sir Charles was cautious, however, fearing that the hounds would not be up to snuff as their owner claimed. Um, He didn't want to buy them until he was certain they could do the job. The dogs were run through several drills during October to prove their abilities, and they trained across the city in open locations such as Regent's Park and Hyde Park. They tracked the scents of various subjects who were given head starts of 15 minutes or so, and Sir Charles himself even acted as the hunted man during at least one drill. However, months later, near the end of October, the police had not made any assurances to Mr. Brow that they would be purchasing the dogs or pay insurance or hiring fees. So he took the dogs to a dog show in Brighton, and, and hearing nothing, he decided that he wouldn't return to London or to the police employ. So around this time, um, word wasn't out that this guy wasn't in London anymore with his dogs. And the final embarrassment converged when Ripper's most grisly murder on the ninth of November was discovered. Um, the body of Mary Jane Kelly was spotted through the window of the number thirteen Miller's Court at eleven thirty a.m. Inspector Aberline, remembering that the hounds had been engaged especially to hunt the Ripper, ordered that the scene not be touched until Burghoe and Barnaby arrived to catch the Ripper's scent. The officers, inspector, and police surgeon waited for two hours before finding out that the dogs were no longer in London, at which point they finally broke down Kelly's door. So the common misconception is that this guy who had the bloodhound just sort of dipped out of London and didn't ever come back, and they had no idea that he was gone, but it sounds like they had been giving him the runaround for a long time, and he just decided to leave because he wasn't being paid. So bloodhounds were imported to America sometime before the Revolutionary War, and in the 16th century, Bloodhounds were used extensively to hunt men, especially poachers and thieves. Game wardens using bloodhounds often caught poachers with fresh blood on their hands from skinning the game, given the rise to the popular saying, being caught red-handed. So highly was their testimony regarded that they were given the legal right to follow a trail anywhere, including into homes. A man refusing to allow a trailing bloodhound into his house was assumed guilty. Bloodhounds have proven so useful in more modern times that certain jurisdictions allow the evidence they collect to be used in court, and to this day, they are the only dogs whose work can be considered as evidence in legal proceedings. So this all relates back to the murder of Allie Bareilles and what her family has done over the years since her death. They started something called the Alley Foundation, and over the years, they have placed around 500 bloodhounds with law enforcement agencies and that number is still growing. The first bloodhound they placed went to the Cherry Hills Police Department. The bloodhound ended up being named Allie. If you want to donate to the Alley Foundation, you can do so at Allie.org. They also have a variety of ways that you can donate, including donating a car and also purchasing wine sets with up to 12 bottles that feature a picture of Richard Borella's and a bloodhound. They also have a wine club you can join. If you're looking to purchase wine for an upcoming event, that might be a good option. So that's all I have for you today. I'm sorry it's going to be a short one this month. Um, Please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. It would be much appreciated. I'll have something for you soon in terms of a brand new historical case, and I'll try to make that one a little bit longer, maybe do a double up on that one for you guys. I'm researching a couple new cases right now and reading some books, so... There's going to be a lot of super interesting cases coming up in the future and I hope you guys will stick around. See ya.